This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Glenn Greenwald, a co-founder of and writer for The Intercept. Greenwald is probably best known for his role in reporting on Edward Snowden's NSA disclosures, which won him and that team a Pulitzer Prize. He now lives in Brazil and has been writing about the Trump administration and the opposition to it. Although a man of the left, Greenwald has been extremely critical of what he sees as the willingness of liberals and Democrats to push for a more aggressive stance against Vladimir Putin's Russia, and for what he considers to be neo-McCarthyism around all things Russia in Washington today. He's also written recently about the willingness of the left to celebrate elements of the national security state who have taken on the Trump administration. Glenn Greenwald, thank you so much for joining us. It's so great to be back. Uh, you've never been on the podcast before. I interviewed you once, but you've never been on the podcast, so you're already misleading people. Oh, I didn't realize that the form of talking to you has changed. <laughs> I thought it has. You're it not has. the same Isaac anymore. You're now a bona fide podcast host. I'm a little more nervous now. Exactly. Exactly. And I expect uh, respect in, in... Commensurate with your position. Exactly. So listen, I uh, I wanted to talk to you for a number of reasons, but one of them which which interested me, and, and I hope we could get a conversation going around, was that just to give a little bit of a speech here, even though this is an interview podcast, it seems to me that a lot of journalists in 2017 have sort of approached the Trump administration in opposition and have said this is an unprecedented threat to democracy or to America or to the world, and that uh, you know this is an incredible time for journalists to be in opposition to power and so on and so forth. Uh, we all know that attitude. I think Slate, where I work, has that attitude. And you, even though you're a person of the left, it seems to me has has sort of approached it a little bit differently. And I, I was curious if you think that that's fair and how you think you've approached it. Um, and then I can give my opinion of how I think maybe you've approached it differently. I think it's, the, it's, it's sort of ironic because when I began writing about politics, I did so very much... Um, as a byproduct of dissatisfaction with the media's refusal to do exactly all the things you just said that they're doing now under the Bush years, that they were refusing to call torture, torture, that they were refusing to point out when Bush and Dick Cheney were lying, that they were being insufficiently adversarial. And the view of journalism that I adopted and have been an advocate of now for almost a decade is one that says that journalists should be much more aggressive in their rhetoric and in their journalism in being adversarial to people who wield political power and to calling out lies when they say things that aren't true and questioning aggressively the things they say rather than just accepting them on faith and, and being willing to, to not be afraid to um, have this perception that they're being too on one side or the other by actually doing journalism. And, in, it's ironic in one sense that that is what the media has now done with Donald Trump, and I'm glad to see it. Um, my concern, though, is that this change in behavior is very much unique to Trump, and that once Trump is gone, um, it's going to return to the way things were. And and my my sort of more general concern 
is that while there are some things that are unique in terms of the threats the Trump presidency poses, there are a lot of things that are just kind of continuations of what has been taking place for a long time that maybe he makes a little bit more manifest. And I worry about the whitewashing of history and the rehabilitating of lots of terrible people based on this myth that Trump and Trump alone is this kind of malignant force in American politics. So you think that it is a myth that uh, well, okay. I mean, I guess obviously there are other there are other malignant forces in American politics, but do you do you not feel that we're dealing with something unique here that should be approached uniquely? Even if the things that you say about hypocrisy among people in the media is is well taken and obviously correct at at some level. I think there are some things that are unique. Um, I think that the extent to which they are willing to pathologically lie is unique, but I think it's unique by a matter of degree rather than kind. I mean, the journalist who probably has influenced me the most since I've been writing about politics that I've gone back and read is I.F. Stone. And the motto of his journalism was government's lie. Um, you know, the government lied its way, not just into the Iraq war, but into the Vietnam war with the Gulf of Tonkin incident. So I think that the Trump White House lies more often. I think they lie more readily. I think they lie more blatantly. Um, so is that unique? It's unique by a matter of degree and not by kind. And I would say that that's true for a lot of things. And, and one of the things I object to is when I see things that have been done for many years or even decades being treated as though they're things that Trump pioneered. That's generally when I start being more overtly concerned about the narrative being misleading. Okay, but I mean, maybe we disagree about this, but it, it does. It seems to me, though, that if we agree that journalists have taken on this unique approach to Trump and whether there's hypocrisy there or not, it seems like you're often you're often focused on the hypocrisy of that rather than. I, I mean, I guess the way I see it is that a lot of people, and this goes from mainstream journalists to some of the, I, I don't remember the phrase you used, terrible people, but I assume people you meant like neocons who supported the Iraq war and may have offered um, dishonest uh, reasons for it or who supported what they would call enhanced and torture. And, and I was about to say and a racist occupation of Palestine, like the, the whole litany of terrible war crimes that not only did they support in the past, but that they continue to support now. And ironically, in some senses, hate Trump because of his questioning of those, at least rhetorically during the campaign. Right. I, I guess, you know, I, I think it's a complicated issue, but I also, I mean, I, I do think that Trump is a unique enough threat to certain aspects of American democracy. And I agree with you that in some ways he's just following on other, I mean, anyone who's read about everything from Henry Kissinger to the way the Iraq war was sold can cannot say that America doesn't do things that are horrific and the things that Trump has promised to do. But it does seem that because Trump does present a threat in certain unique ways that at least I feel, you know, that people should be welcomed for coming to the right side of something, even if they should at the same time have to answer for the things that they've so, done. So let me just say, let me just wrong. say two things about that. So I'll give you an example where I think it's more than just about hypocrisy, where I think it becomes harmful deceit. So when Trump met with um, General Sisi of, of Egypt in the White House, there was all of the, and, and then also when he went to, to Saudi Arabia and he preys on the regime in Saudi Arabia, there was all of this sanctimony about how can they, an American president possibly embrace tyrants this way? When the entire history of post-World War II America is not just embracing tyrants and heaping them with praise, but propping them up with money and with arms. Hillary Clinton said that, uh, 
Hosni Mubarak, one of the worst despots of the last four decades, was a close friend of her family's who she looked forward to seeing when he came to the United States. So pretending that Trump um, is kind of this pioneer of embracing despots, something that the American presidency previously was so anathema to, it's not just hypocrisy, like Democrats didn't care when Obama hugged Saudi despots, and now he, they pretend to care when, when Trump um, embraces Saudi despots or Egyptian ones. It's deceitful. It's, it's creating a false narrative about what the bipartisan class in Washington actually has done and actually what they still believe in doing as a way of... Um, stigmatizing Trump for something that they themselves all do. And I think as a journalist, um, it's my obligation to say that this narrative is actually false. So I think the times that I get bothered the most is not just simple hypocrisy, but when it extends into rewriting history. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, as I said, I, I got my start writing about primarily civil liberties in the Bush era. And the people who built up my platform and who enabled me to find a readership were Democrats, were the liberal blogosphere and liberals who were saying, oh, Glenn Greenwald's so great. Look at this critique he's making of the Bush administration, their executive power theories, their lawbreaking. And then when Bush left office and Obama came in and continued many of those same policies, a lot of those people not only stopped caring, they, they started defending those policies and attacking those of us who were consistent. And so I don't actually think that there's limited value even in people who pretend to care about issues only for partisan opportunism and gain, I actually think those people are really harmful because the minute those policies are embraced by members of their own party, they're going to become cheerleaders for them. And I'm not interested in vesting them with credibility in order to do that. That's a fair critique. But I also think that you can also say that everyone is hypocritical to some degree, obviously different different levels, and that when people do take the, the right position at something that they should be applauded for that because no one is going to be entirely consistent. And I don't say that to sort of excuse people who excuse torture or something like that, obviously. But it does seem that you're always going to find hypocrisy, certainly among politicians, but even among, you know, opinion writers, or I'm sure you and I have hypocrisies that uh, could be discovered and that you need to applaud people for taking the right stand. But I, I, I mean, you can respond to that. But the one other thing I want to ask you about about this, which my psychological reading of what's going on is you, you brought up the post-Cold War world and you said, look, America has supported one despot after another. In many cases, they've done all these horrible things. And you have, you know, you also have Ronald Reagan or Gene Kirkpatrick. I think, what was it that Jonas Savimbi was a philosopher or something like that? I can't yeah, remember the yeah. exact quote, but quotes that are basically as ridiculous as you could find Trump saying about CC. Um, and I agree that that's all true and much of it is completely shameful. I think the difference among people is that there was a sense that, you know, a lot of this stuff was realpolitik. It was done to uphold the Western world order, and that world order was being upheld because fundamentally it offered certain freedoms, et cetera, that in the long run were good. And so, yes, there were bad compromises involved, but we were essentially doing this because a world order should be upheld and all else being equal, that that world order was better than the alternatives. And whether you think that's right or wrong, I do think a lot of that is what a lot of what was going on was. And I You're think about the Cold War. You're talking about the Cold yeah, War mentality? Yeah. The, and yes. And I think what um, and then the post-Cold War order um, after 1991. And I think what scares people about Trump is there's a sense that not only is he speaking up for dictators, but he has no respect for the good aspects of this world order, whether it's peace in Europe, peace in Western Europe, or, you know, a commitment to certain civil rights and civil liberties, which our country 
has obviously practiced uh, very insufficiently at times, but also in some ways has a commitment to certain issues. And I think the fact that people think he has no commitment to any of these principles is what scares people and why you see this reaction. And I don't think that's totally insane. So, uh, so here's what I will agree has validity is that Trump often seems to heap praise on dictators in just as, you know, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and whoever your favorite Democrat has did as well. Martin O'Malley. Um, not because they're strategic partners of the U.S. and advanced U.S. interests, which, by the way, doing it for that reason is a horrible, evil thing. But I think he goes beyond that and expresses almost like an envy that he wishes and aspires to their level of totalitarian power. And the more totalitarian power they exercise, the more fearful their domestic opponents are, the more he respects them, because that's what he sees himself as aspiring to as a leader. And that I do think is alarming and scary and different. So I agree with that part of it. Um, I really, I, I have a lot of trouble with this idea that when a politician does something really destructive and immoral, we're supposed to look into their hearts and feel like, well, they're just doing it begrudgingly. They wish they didn't have to do it, but they're doing it because they think they should, as opposed to because they really like it or because in the ideal world they would be doing it. There's just no way to know that. Um, I don't know. Hillary Clinton sounded really genuine when she talked about Hosni Mubarak. Um, and I think that the reason is, is because they deal so much with these dictators and these dictators do become their partners um, that they start excusing and mitigating all of their crimes. Um, and so, you know, I think both the Cold War order and the post-Cold War order has been very much the U a story of the U.S. not just tolerating dictators, but seeking them out and trying to strengthen them on the grounds that doing so will advance U.S. interests. The other thing I'll say is, this whole idea of like the post-World War II order, you know, this, I, I mean, one of the things that I found most disturbing about the 2016 election was when Trump raised questions about NATO and whether NATO is obsolete in light of the fact that there's no more communism and no more Soviet Union, that it was originally created to fight, whether the vast expenditures that we lay out for NATO military and NATO forces is something that we ought to continue to do, whether the military um, adventures of NATO in Libya and elsewhere has actually been something that has served the national interest. To me, these are totally legitimate questions. Um, I don't think NATO has kept the peace. If you live in Paris and you live in London, then it has. But if you live in Somalia or you live in Yemen or you live in Libya or you live in Iraq, then it hasn't. And so I think there are, we ought to be able to have a good faith debate about things like, are these international institutions that continue to exert military force in the name of the Western alliance doing more harm than good? Is it really worth the outlay without being accused of being treasonous or Vladimir Putin's puppet or anything like that? I think that's a debate that's valid and worth having. I think when you have someone who's speaking highly of Vladimir Putin and seems to not have any commitment to, let's say, the parts of NATO that most people would agree are valuable or the idea that Western Europe has been at peace for so long, uh, relatively in its history, I, it's very hard to have that conversation. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like trying to have a conversation about 
terrorist threat and it, when you have a racist islamophobic president who just says we're going to ban muslims from these countries it's it's hard to have that conversation and so i think i think part of the reason that conversation didn't really happen is because the person who was doing it was donald trump and it's really hard under those circumstances but but like look, but look at other people who have tried having those conversations so you have um jeremy corbyn who has been raising those same questions. Should we, should we, the, you know, in, in, in Great Britain be part of the EU? Should we really be part of NATO? Is the assertion of, of military force that we've been doing in Syria and Iraq and Libya, um, really worthwhile? And you see him being disqualified in many of the same ways. The same thing happened when Ron Paul tried raising those questions in the 2008 and 2012 primary, and then to a lesser extent when Rand Paul did. So I think you're right that there are things about Trump, just his personality, the way he, he his character. I mean, there's few people who I think merit less respect just as human beings on the planet than Donald Trump. Like, it's amazing. He's actually a person that is without any redeeming value, like no redeeming qualities. So I, I get the fact that having him be the leader of the person conducting this debate is very distracting. And you're right, can kind of infect and corrupt the the debate. But I think it's very important not to lose sight of the fact that there are a lot of people with very vested interests in ha having these policies remain unquestioned. And anybody who questions them, anybody who questions those policies um, or who tries to have that debate is going to be stigmatized. They're going to be vilified and they're going to be the target of character assassination because there's a lot of people who don't want those debates to be had, including a lot of the people who are now being rehabilitated um, simply because they hate Trump, like Bill Kristol and David Frum and the whole neocon um, alliance and even large parts of the Republican Party. So that's why I'm so torn is like, yes. The critiques about Trump are often valid, but I really worry about the longer term enduring implications that we're all collectively endorsing by sort of this groupthink that says that he and he alone is is the, the sole problem. Right. But isn't there another aspect of this, which is it's not just that he's an imperfect messenger, but I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I mean, I hadn't given a lot of thought to NATO collective security and the future of, of the alliance. But to me, it, it almost seems more important now than it did three years ago, not because Trump is speaking out. I won't say against it exactly, but speaking out with, you know, uh, mincing words about it, but also because we now have a president who speaks approvingly of Vladimir Putin trying to hack Western elections. Like it, it seems like the entire, the, it seems like the actual realities have changed because this guy is our president. I mean, it sounds like it sounds to when you say that kind of stuff, like it sounds to me like you almost are describing a new cold war. NATO was the original justification of NATO was that it needed to band together in order to defend the West against this pernicious ideology emanating from Moscow. And what I hear you saying and lots of other people saying is that the reason we still need NATO, notwithstanding the collapse of communism, is because there's this pernicious ideological movement emanating from Moscow that we need to unite in defense against. And one of the reasons why I find that so alarming is because if you look at what President Obama was saying for eight years, and it's one of the things that I agreed with him so much on and actually often, you know, express uh, praise for him for doing. He was extremely reluctant to adopt this worldview that held that Russia was this new serious 
geopolitical threat. He constantly mocked the idea, most famously in the 2012 debate with Mitt Romney, but in other instances as well. He often pointed out that Russia has a, a that its economy is smaller than than Italy. He refused to arm anti-Russian factions in Ukraine. He didn't want to confront the Russians in Syria, notwithstanding a bipartisan demand that he did so. And the reason for that was he understood that if we escalate tensions with Russia by exaggerating the threat that it poses to our country, then we could find ourselves in the midst of a new Cold War, which was so destructive the first time around. I think he was right for eight years, and I still think he's right, notwithstanding the fact that, let's assume it's true, that some Russians successfully sent phishing links to John Podesta and then leaked his emails. Like, I don't think that changes the geopolitical reality in such a fundamental way as I think your question suggests. Okay, but I mean, you know, it does seem like things have changed in the last couple of years. I mean, it's continuing Russian action in eastern Ukraine and with the annexation, post-annexation of Crimea. It's, it's yes, it's phishing links to John Podesta, but it does seem like there is a, at least according to some of our intelligence agencies, a larger, and reporting, there is at least a larger uh, effort on the part of the Russians to interfere in several Western elections, and which... I assume will be ongoing. I mean, none of the, this all seems like it changes the picture at least somewhat. I mean, do you not feel like what we've learned or what what we seem to have learned in the last year about Russian interference and Russian behavior vis-a-vis the election has changed it all the way you think about it? Uh, well, first of all, I, and I know this is blasphemous to say, and I I find it like very disturbing that it is. I still think it is worth underscoring that. The United States government has, to this very moment, still not presented actual evidence, as opposed to claims and assertions, that Vladimir Putin ordered the hacking of the DNC and John Podesta's emails in order to sway the election in favor of Donald Trump. I know we're all duty-bound to accept that this is true. I know that if we question it, it means that we're being irrational. But I do just want to point out that the evidence for this presented by the U.S. government is essentially non-existent. And remember that there was a, there were a lot of claims that got made during the French election about the hacking of Macron's emails that were, of course, said to be done by the Russians, that forensic investigations, once the election was over, concluded probably weren't true, that it wasn't really the Russians who did at least those kind of hacks. Now, I don't doubt at all that the Kremlin interferes in Western domestic politics by trying to sow divisions, by trying to support factions that it believes are better for its interest as opposed to worse for its interests. I don't even doubt that the Kremlin wanted Trump to win over Clinton, given that she was saying she essentially wanted regime change in Syria and we should confront the Russians more aggressively in Ukraine, and Trump was taking the opposite view. All I'm saying is that even if all of that is true, every like they're interfering in this way, this is banal. This is garden variety interference. This is the stuff that the U.S. does constantly all the time. Now, I'm not saying that that justifies what the Russians are doing, but I think we have to put these threats in perspective. There is a huge difference between having a country be a military threat to the United States, that they're going to send terrorists or fighters into our borders to harm our, our citizens or blow things up or that there's missiles pointed at our cities that they are a threat to pose. That's the kind of real threat to our security that I think we need to sound the alarms in order to defend against. But 
hacking emails and supporting parties, this is stuff that we do to them and have done to them, to them for decades and still continue to do. So I just think that it's very easy to focus only on those isolated threats, but I think it's so important to try and keep in perspective how grave of an aberration that that really is from the international order and how nation states deal with one another. Right. I mean, it does seem like some of the things that Putin has done, I mean, there've been, there've been a BuzzFeed has had a lot of reports on what seemed to possibly be um, assassinations in the UK. Um, there've been uh, cases here of Russians of Russians. Right. But I mean, on, you know, assassinating, I mean, this is the type of thing that Pinochet did, uh, I think, in the United States. I don't know anyone else, any other foreign government who's who's done that in the United States. And I mean, I, again, I, I, we don't need to relitigate whether whether the Russian hacking, how much evidence there is for it. I, I mean, I know I, I know your your position on that. It, it does. It does seem to me, though, that the way Putin has behaved post Crimea is at least we're thinking about what our posture is vis-a-vis Russia and what that means going forward. And it, it it's the Trump stuff, just to sort of try to understand, I think, psychologically why, I mean, you called it a new Cold War, why people are so scared about this, is it just does seem Trump's behavior around Putin and Russia is so bizarre. It's one of the very few things he's been kind of legalistically consistent about time and time again. And it just it's weird. And I think people don't understand it and they're worried about it. And I think it fits into this larger thing that what you're saying, what you said earlier about the one difference between Trump's praise of dictators is that he in some way seems to envy them. And I think that that creeps people out, that he legitimately seems to almost envy the type of power Putin has and his connections or, you know, rumored connections, which are now being investigated with the Russians. I think it makes sense why people are feeling like this is a threat and this is something to be nervous about. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, so, so I think it's important not to conflate those things. So there are other world leaders that Trump has uniformly praised. He has uniformly praised um, the leaders of the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. He has uniformly praised Netanyahu. He has never uttered a syllable of criticism about Netanyahu. People love to say Putin's the only one that he hasn't criticized, of who's a world leader. It's just not true. Um, he loves Israel. He loves the Saudis. He loves uh, the Emirates. He loves the Gulf states. Um, and so I don't find his... You know, and also Duarte in, in the in the Philippines, who he's actually he preys on yes. too, and never uttered a, a single um, bad word about. I but think, there's no countervailing pressure on any of those things, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I just, I just, I think so. I so again, I think we're in agreement that Trump has serious authoritarian tendencies that I think are dangerous and need to be guarded against. And I actually think that one of the really positive things about the Trump presidency has been the way that it has revitalized a lot of dormant checks. I mean, you were just saying how vibrant and aggressive um, and kind of pugnacious the U.S. media has been since Trump ele- election, which I agree with. That's great to see that that the idea of adversarial journalism lives and breathes again outside of fringes. Um, I think the way that courts have stood up to Trump and said that a lot of his policies are in violation of the Constitution and struck them down, something I wish they had done during the war on terror under the Bush and the Obama administrations, is incredibly good to see as well. And then most of all, I think that citizen activism has really been revitalized. 
So I agree with you that Trump has authoritarian tendencies, that he would love to exert um, a kind of form of despotic power, at least when his will is thwarted. And I think it's very much worth watching. And I think it is actually scary as well. But I don't, I also think that the institutions that are designed to check those have been stimulated in a really encouraging way by the fear that people have of him. One of the institutions that I think a lot of people think has checked Trump in some way is what sort of half ironically or sometimes not ironically called the deep state, which is people who are leaking information from the government um, or assumed people leaking information from the government um, about various goings on with Trump. And you've written a lot about this. And it seems like one of the fears that you have is that the so-called deep state or figures in the national security establishment who are opposed to the democratically elected president of the United States um, would in the long run undermine democracy in some way. What, what, what specifically are you are you scared of by this opposition, sort of unprecedented opposition we're seeing from within the government to Trump. You know, it's interesting because this theory that there's this kind of unelected permanent power faction in Washington composed of, at least in part, the intelligence and military community gets treated so often like it's some deep, dark, exotic, bizarre fringe conspiracy theory, when in reality, it's totally basic to how very sophisticated people have talked about Washington for decades. I mean, the person who originated the theory was Dwight Eisenhower in his farewell speech when after serving for eight years as president, the one thing he wanted to warn Americans about was that these unelected factions that were growing in power were threatening democratic accountability because they were becoming more powerful than even elected officials like him because he had butted heads so often. And he's a five-star general, um, and he was worried about them, you know, 50 years ago before they boomed in in power and size with the Vietnam War, um, followed by um, Reagan and the Cold War, followed by the War on Terror. So this idea that there's a really powerful, dangerous um, element in Washington that operates in the dark with very little transparency and accountability or democratic checks is something that... Um, you can mock all you want, but I don't mean you personally, but I mean, one can mock all they want, but it's, it's very elemental to how, to understanding how Washington works once you get past a sixth grade civics class. And I guess like the thing that, that I do really worry about, um, you know, it's sort of like in Syria, what's so tragic about Syria is that the choice that people ended up being, um, given was sort of pick between Assad or Al Qaeda or ISIS. You know, once the kind of, um, ordinary people of the Syrian revolution kind of, you know, got defeated, um, you just had to choose between awful choices. And I'm really worried about having this choice be in the U.S., choose between Trump and whatever you want to call it, call it the deep state, call it the national security blob, call it, you know, the CIA and, and the Pentagon. Um, because I think that as dangerous as Trump is, those factions have proven extremely dangerous as well, particularly when they start interfering in domestic politics, even if you're happy about the results that they're at the moment bringing about. And I think to be dismissive of that threat um, or so short-sighted and myopic about it because you just anything that stops Trump is a good thing, um, I think it's something that's really worth worrying about. But when people are leaking stuff to the media about what they think is going on that's newsworthy, I mean, I assume that generally speaking that that's a trend that you're happy about. Yeah, I'm totally in favor of leaks. But at the same time, I mean, let's let's Think of some hypotheticals, um, and then I'd, I'd love to, you know, know whether as a journalist it would 
bother you. Um, let's say that the NSA... I'm not a journalist, Glenn. Come on. Yeah, just a podcast host, but you're a striving journalist. So let's say that like, um, you know, the NSA, some people inside the NSA start getting emails of people they dislike because those people are advocating policies that they regard as wrong. And they start leaking their emails and their telephone calls to the Washington Post and the New York Times in an attempt to harm their reputation and discredit them. On one, in one sense, as a journalist or somebody who favors transparency, you say, well, that's a good thing. They really did say those things. Um, it's newsworthy. And I'm happy that this has become public. But on the other hand, it's also an abuse of, of power for um, the NSA or the CIA to take the intelligence that they're gathering about people and then use it to harm domestic enemies. So I think that there are two sides to that to that coin, and, and both are serious ones. If you look at something like the DNC hacks, I mean, that was illegally taken information that the media reported on. Um, I assume you think they should have reported on it. Well, I mean, but there's that that's a great example of actually what I was just saying, which is on the one hand, I do think there was newsworthy information within both the Podesta emails and the DNC leaks that ought to have been public. On the other hand, I think there were disturbing aspects of how that leak was handled. There was some really personal information about people that had very little public interest that should never have seen the light of day and that harmed people's privacy and harmed people's reputations. And so, you know, I think that you can be a, a, a fan of that leak in one way in terms of the transparency that it brings, as I was for the DNC and Podesta leaks, as I am for a lot of the leaks that have taken place, even the illegal ones, like proving that Flynn lied about his um, meetings with, with Kislyak. Um, but on the other hand, I can recognize the harms and dangers that both of those pose. What did you think about the leak of Trump's transcripts with uh, the leaders of Mexico and Australia? I thought they, that those leaks were great. Um, you know, I think, but like, that's because I tend to be, um, very much on the side of pro transparency. So I read David Frum's article where he was fretting about how terrible and horrible this was, um, because presidents need to have the, um, certainty that they can talk freely to foreign leaders without fear that the transcripts are going to be public. And that's true. But at the same time, Trump, overtly lied repeatedly about the content of those conversations. And so I think that the American people have the absolute right to know when their president is lying to them, if there's evidence showing that he did. I want to ask just because we were talking about leaks, what do you make a number of years later, um, I guess more than five years of the whole WikiLeaks project and what Julian Assange is trying to do? So I've definitely had my disputes and conflicts with WikiLeaks. Um, over the years, they were very vociferous and sometimes vicious critics of the way we handled the Snowden file on the grounds that we should have just dumped it all um, instead of curating it the way our source demanded. We've been very critical of them in terms of how they've handled some of their leaks, including the Podesta and DNC leaks, because they didn't curate it and they dumped it and I think harmed their reputation. So we definitely have had our conflicts. At the same time, I think that WikiLeaks continues to be a force for good because what it's designed above all to do is to facilitate large data leaks of the most powerful institutions in the world who otherwise have the ability to operate under um, the cover of darkness. That doesn't mean that I don't think WikiLeaks is subject to a lot of valid criticisms, um, many of which I voiced myself. Um, but I think that on balance, they've done far more harm than good, um, far more good than harm, rather, when you look at all of the leaks and all of the transparency and the way they've enabled them. I mean, the Manning 
documents by themselves is probably the single greatest and most valuable journalistic archive that we have for understanding how the world works. So, um, yeah, I think that, that WikiLeaks continues to be something that, um, is commendable. Do you understand? It does seem sort of following Assange as a character, um, at least through Twitter. Um, he's sort of changed a lot in the last several years. Do you have some sense of that? I think Julian is like one of the most complicated people, at least that I've ever met. And I think it's very difficult to assess who he is or what he thinks based on the things he says publicly, because I think a lot of times those are very strategic. I think what I assume you're talking about is the perception, which I wouldn't vehemently argue with, that whereas maybe seven years ago or six years ago, he was viewed as kind of more of a leftist, as kind of an anti-imperialist, he now seems to be to find greater sympathy with the right. But I also think that it's important to realize that in lots of ways, the ideological landscape has shifted also. You know, and you and I talked about this the the last time that we spoke, um, which wasn't for your podcast, as I understand, but for your interview, uh, for an interview that we did um, about the fact that, you know, Trump, whether you believe him or not, whether he was sincere or not, he based his campaign on condemning U.S. interventions. He condemned the war in Iraq. He condemned the war in Libya. He condemned the idea of regime change in Syria and just the grand project of American imperialism overall. Whereas Hillary Clinton was a very vociferous defender, not of the war in Iraq, but certainly the war in Libya, the idea of escalation of force in Syria, the validity and nobility of our ongoing commitment to NATO. And so if you're somebody who's an anti-imperialist, as as I think Julian above all else is, someone who believes that America has been a force for evil in the world and not for good in the post-World War II order, it is understandable that you would not be attached in any way to the Democratic Party and on some instances would be more enamored of the kind of isolationism and non-interventionism that at least parts of the right – rhetorically advocate, even if in practice they don't actually implement it. And so I think that maybe Julian has changed some by virtue of the fact that the Obama administration convened a grand jury and wanted to imprison him. Hillary Clinton led the way. Maybe personally he has animosity towards Democrats that has shifted his orientation. But I also think it's really important to recognize how much the ideological landscape has has changed in the past several years in ways that we don't talk about enough. But when you say anti-imperialist, I assume you mean anti-American imperialist, right? Because um, I don't see Assange ranting about, you know, Russian behavior in Crimea, which you could argue is just another form of imperialism. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I think I would refer you to this Noam Chomsky quote that um, I've cited many times when he's asked why it is that he tends to focus most on the United States and not the crimes of other states. And he said it was true for two reasons. He said one is um, the U.S. is by far the most powerful and the richest country on earth, the most militaristic country on earth. And so it's responsible for the great bulk of imperialism. Um, the second reason that doesn't apply to Julian, but that doesn't apply to me and to, to Chomsky and lots of others is as an American, you tend to want to – write about and think about and talk about the acts of your own government because you can have a greater effect on their actions than you can on governments halfway across the world where you don't have any um, base in. And so, you know, I think that if you were to ask Julian, he would say he's published lots of stuff about governments other than the United States, which is true. Um, but he would probably also say that in terms of imperialism, the country that has operated in the most countries around the world that 
interferes in the most governments is the United States by virtue of its, um, you know, supreme power. Do you have any sense of what his relationship is or isn't with the Russian government or forces associated with the Russian government? I have never, ever seen any evidence. Literally, I have not seen any evidence that he has any relationship with the, the Russian government. Um, he has contacts in lots of governments, um, but I've never seen any kind of evidence that he takes orders from the Russian government, that he acts as a cutout for the Russian government or anything along those lines. Before I let you go, when you look at this Russia story now with uh, with Mueller as the special counsel investigating any possible collusion or God knows what else, has your opinion of it at all changed in the last year based on things we've learned or haven't learned or what's been leaked to the press? I mean, learn is a you know, we're, we're getting this through news reports. Um, what, what, what's your sense of, of where the story is? And, and, and again, do you, has your opinion of it all, have, has your opinion of it at all changed? So my fundamental opinion has not changed, which is that the, the notion of removing a president through impeachment or prosecuting people um, should be done on the basis of very convincing, tangible evidence that has gone through an orderly legal process and is not the byproducts of anonymous leaks from people we can't see making claims based on evidence we can't review. And I think that, by and large, the Russia story, at least insofar as it pertains to the notion of whether Trump colluded with the Russians to hack the DNC and Podesta emails, and by Trump I mean Trump world, is still very much lacking in that kind of tangible evidence. And I'm thrilled that we have a prosecutor who pretty much everybody um, regards as credible, who will in some systematic way review that evidence and presumably eventually make it public along with his findings about what took place here. And that will lead to an orderly process of due process where these claims will finally be tested. I'm thrilled about that. I do think that there have been some disclosures, um, probably the leading one of which was the email exchange with uh, Donald Trump Jr. regarding the, the meeting that he attended along with Jared Kushner, um, where at least the idea was being conveyed to them that the Russians wanted Trump to win and that they were receptive to receiving information that could be helpful along those lines. That didn't shock me. It didn't surprise me. Um, the Democrats have tried to get information from the Ukrainians and the Russians that were harmful to Trump. I think that's what campaigns do. But it does, I think, increase the possibility that or the probability um, that at some points evidence will emerge showing collusion. Um, but until such evidence emerges showing collusion, and I don't really think there is any, by which I mean collusion to commit crimes or to do hacking, um, I don't think there should be an assumption that it happened. Yeah, the, the most surprising part of that to me was the sort of offhanded mention of the Russian government support for your father's campaign in the email, which, um, again, we don't know. I mean, the guy who said that, he, it's not clear he would know what he's talking about. But just that you say something like that in an email to someone, this is before any of the hacked material was released, that you say that to someone and you sort of assume they know what you're talking about and they don't even respond, I thought was pretty striking. But again, as you say, we uh, we don't know yet what is going to come out. 
Exactly. Let me just say, like, I, and that, and that's exactly the kind of thing that you know normally would get tested. You would look at the other emails. You would look at the context, um, and that's the concern I have is when things come out in drips and drabs. It's very easy to kind of manipulate public perception. But I do agree that that was interesting, um, and I think we all are in agreement that we want the full story to finally come out in a systematic and orderly way. Uh, last question for you: You're in Brazil right now, correct? I am. That is correct. Where are you? I'm in Rio de Janeiro. Okay. Um, well, I was just curious because Brazil is a country undergoing a political crisis, which makes anything you could say about our political crisis seem tame, uh, other than the fact that I guess we have nuclear weapons and they don't. So uh, the 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 risk of uh, downside risk is higher. But um, I was just wondering what being in Brazil um, the last several years as a country has undergone a complete political crisis with one president being impeached and removed and um, an entire legislature and much of the executive being um, uh, under investigation for corruption. I, I was just wondering what 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 you've made of that being there and uh, if it's given you any insight into what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, that politics is a lot more international um, than we uh, sometimes think of it as being, which makes sense because the financial system is now so international, and so are you know patterns of migration and so many other problems have become internationalized. Um, and you know, you obviously see that with this kind of like uber nationalistic right, not just in the U.S. with Trump, but in the U.K. with UKIP and with Le Pen in France and throughout Western Europe. And one of the things that has like really made me worried about Brazil is that there is this very far right um, kind of fascistic movement that in some ways is worse than and more extreme than than Trump. Um, the the leader of this movement, um, his name is Jair Bolsonaro. He's a member of the, the Brazilian Congress. He was um, in the military during the time of dictatorship. He actually advocates a return of military dictatorship. And one of the things, a year ago, it was inconceivable that he would even make a, any kind of a decent showing in the election. And now people are genuinely worried with good reason that he can win in 2018. And the reason is, is that when faith in the political class collapses and people start to believe that the political system has nothing to offer them, they naturally gravitate to those on the outside that the political system tells them are bad people because the thing they hate the most is not these bad people, but the political system itself. And I think that this is one of the things that most disturbs me about the discourse about Trump and also Brexit in the UK, which is that even, let's say we removed Trump tomorrow. The sentiments that gave rise to Trump, the, the suffering of people throughout the United States because of all these policies of, of globalism and free trade and, and inequality and moving things to the 1%, None of those sentiments are going anywhere. Those people are going to hate the political system and the media class of which we're a part just as much, if not more so, as they did the day before Trump was removed. And this is what I think we haven't grappled with because of our single-minded obsession with hating Trump is there are undercurrents that are fundamental to the failures of our political elites in the United States. And the same is happening in Brazil. And the more those failures remain unaddressed, the more extremism is going to seem attractive to people. And that's what I really worry about most is that what's going to happen is if we get rid of Trump, um, is that it's just going to reaffirm the idea that he was kind of the bad apple and that all of these people who are responsible for the conditions that gave rise to Trump are just going to return almost as heroes. 
And I think that that's one of the things that we haven't grappled with enough is there's been systemic failure on the part of ruling classes in multiple countries around the world. Um, and people are going to turn to one form of extremism or another if that continues. I agree. I mean, I guess this is a long, longer conversation, which we'll have to do next time. But I think also it's easy to fall into the trap and of thinking that the reason that you and I hate the establishment or you hate the establishment or I hate the establishment, whatever, is or dislike about the establishment is the reason that the people who voted for Trump hate the establishment. And um, But have you spent time – have you spent time like in the parts of the country that – voted for Trump unexpectedly? Uh, not so much last year. I did in 2004. I spent a ton of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in, in those places this summer, including in Wisconsin. And, and, and I mean, I just think if you go there, it's not it, the, the policy that I've spent the most time on and that I write about the most are not the policies they care about. Um, the poli the policies they care about are the ones that have left them with no jobs and inability to send their kids to school. Um, an opiate crisis that they're incapable of dealing with being spiritually broken, having, you know, towns where industries have all left with no prospect for return. Um, and the sense that the government in Washington is very distant from them culturally and especially economically and serves coastal elites at their expense. And that's the same mindset that is driving people into the arms of the far right in Brazil that drove people into the arms of Brexit, that drove people into the arms of Marine Le Pen. And that, I think, is the thing that we're not dealing with um, anywhere near enough. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's fair. I mean, I guess I would say when I when I spent extensive time on a campaign in 2004, what was striking to me was that talking to people in these areas, they they expressed a lot of the stuff that you just said, um, maybe less strongly, but a lot of the same themes. And what I think with Trump is that these things can manifest themselves in many different ways, probably most of them harmful, but we sort of have someone uniquely harmful now. And so this political crisis that we're going to have because we have these underlying problems that are going to manifest themselves in some way, there's also this just more urgent task of like, we have a president who, if not mentally unbalanced, is really weird and really dangerous. And that that needs to be solved uh obviously through democratic means, uh, regardless of the long-term consequences. But as you say, the long-term consequences are, are scary as well. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Greenwald is a co-founder and writer for The Intercept, and uh, he joins us from Rio today. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Glenn. Thanks a lot. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from Eric Dow. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. We've gotten some great suggestions over email, also some very strange ones, which I'm not going to read, but we've gotten some great ones too, so please email me. And one other thing, for our Bay Area listeners, we're having a live taping of I Have to Ask on September 26th. That's a Tuesday at 7 p.m. with Franklin Foer, my former boss and the author of World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. It's at Books, Inc. in San Francisco. So please come out on Tuesday, September 26th, if you're in the area, for what I hope will be a really interesting discussion on big tech and what Frank calls its existential threat. You can get tickets at booksinc.net. That's booksinc.net.